0: Hello, and welcome to the Strictly Fishwrap Science Radio Hour. I am your host, Skylar Bear. I'm
1: your co-host, Tom Young.
0: Um, before we get started, I just want to uh, acknowledge the support we've had for, I think, the last year and a half, if not longer, from the Island Institute, which is located here in Rockland at 386 Main Street. IslandInstitute.org, and they work to sustain Maine's island and coastal communities and exchanges ideas and experiences to further the sustainability of communities here and elsewhere. And today's show is actually going to be, sadly... Are last for a while. No, <laughs> Tom's upset for multiple reasons. One of which is that I will be doing um, a fellowship in marine policy in Washington D.C. starting in February. Uh, it may last up to a year, so uh, we got to get some things settled with our house and
1: our uh, new house. Our new house. <laughs>
0: wrap up some projects, <laughs> see some family, go to Iceland for our very delayed honeymoon, and so. There's just no room <laughs> to come here <laughs> Not with. if
1: we want to keep that toilet running and the washing machine right. working and make that shower.
0: <laughs> right. The, the radio station today is one of the few places we've been this week that has power. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so there's no room for the radio show for the next few months, and then I'll be in D.C. However, uh, there probably will be interviews and other sort of random podcasts dropped here and there. Uh, You can check out strictlyfishwrap.com or check us out on SoundCloud. I've been in the process of trying to get it finally after like two and a half years on iTunes. I didn't try before, but um, so that way you can kind of download it through iTunes and find it. And um, we'll announce that online when that's ready. There's also the Facebook page and, of course, um, my Twitter feed, which is now... Doctor S R Bear instead of strictly fish wrap without the I. Um, so anyway, those are ways to still keep in touch with us, and maybe when I get back from DC, we can resume the show. We'll talk to WRFR LP about that. But anyway, we do have some great science to talk about um, today for the show. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about Dr. Nick Record and his Eco Cats. I got to interview him; had a wonderful interview. But we'll get to that later. Uh, but first, we have some science topics that are timely uh, given recent <laughs> events in Maine. Uh, and yeah, so Tom, what do you have for us today?
1: So, uh, as uh, as you mentioned, Skylar, this is uh, one of the. F- first places we've only places we've really been this week that has power uh a week ago maine and many other parts of new england were hit by a pretty tremendous wind and rainstorm that clocked a wind speeds of over 70 miles per hour and maine this small state with a population of only uh, 1.3 million had uh half a million people that's about 40 percent without power wow. for some period of time after that windstorm well it turns out that uh skylar and i Our new brand new home in Newcastle, Maine, still do not have power a week later. Yay!
2: Yay.
1: Um, (laughs) So at this point, um, from half a million, the state is down to now about 11,000. Without power, Scholar and I live in Lincoln County, yeah. where uh, where it boasts by far and away the <laughs> highest percentage of c- power customers, electricity customers that still do not have power. It's at yeah, about there's like sixteen percent. Yeah, like four
0: thousand or right. whatever and, in Lincoln uh, County. And I there, think the
1: next highest is like five percent for a, ca- a county. Right. <laughs> right,
0: but but like for contrast, in Knox County here, there are only forty-eight customers
1: that don't have, have power. By. Yeah, so this is like the promised land. Like, oh, everyone has their lights on still. <laughs> and the power lines are not on the ground with trees on top of them anymore. <laughs> wow, it's incredible. It's like coming into back into the first world country. Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, so, you know, we're hanging out here and hoping that our power will come back on tonight so we can catch up on, you know, those things you take for granted in life, like uh, showers and, uh, you know, dishes. <laughs> Right, and 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 to be, toilets
0: with running water right, where toilets. you don't have to go yep. get the bucket from the creek <laughs> and pour it in so you can flush.
1: There, There's more than one way to flush a toilet, Skylar.
0: Yeah. Um, well, so I heard on the radio that something like workers from 16 states or something came in two provinces yeah. from Canada. And so yeah, we
1: were seeing power trucks, electricity and arbor trucks that were coming all the way from, like, Florida and Virginia. Indiana. Indiana, all the way up the coast to help with this, this uh, disaster. And, uh, yeah, so it's been a huge effort. And our uh, many thanks go out to all the arborists and linemen who have been working tirelessly and um, probably around the clock to try to resolve all these issues. And it is it is indeed the largest power outage in Maine state history with a record number of tree falls. Uh, And so, you know, we were looking into what might be the reasons for that, because there are some like scientific explanations or hypotheses for why that might be. And this year had a had a really dry summer, a bit of a drought this summer followed by really heavy fall rains and ju- just this last month and the dry summer caused um, trees roots to weaken and to sort of shrink back and then the heavy fall rains created some instability in the soil and then if you add on top of that these um, strong winds of about 70 miles per hour uh, all of those factors added up to um, many many tree falls that occurred during this incident we uh, one place we like to go hiking. It was astounding yeah, going Griggs back preserve. there. There were there were just some places where like us. in a 20 foot stretch there'd maybe be half a dozen trees down in this big pile. <laughs> it was like some some like giant had come through the forest in a rage just ripping trees out and throwing them all over right. the place. It was really and, quite incredible.
0: And it's like, you know, I don't know if anyone watches stranger things, but um, and if you aren't, why aren't you? <laughs> but it's like... She's our
1: friend, and she's crazy.
0: <laughs> yeah, and... <laughs> and, I mean, some of the trees look like, you know, like a portal to another dimension, yeah. you know, has been opened up, and it goes down right to the granite, all the roots, and there right. are these enormous trees. And there are a lot of really big trees and deciduous trees, like maples and probably oaks.
1: Right, and you can see, like, like Skylar mentioned, in so many places where these healthy trees just had their entire root masses peeled up from the the topsoil, which is really... And I
0: think in that article that we talked about, they said that it probably affected the older trees the worst, Hmm. because I think it's like two plus years of drought, because I think last year was pretty droughty as well. And um, and then having this huge amount of water in the last week or whatever. My, my friend Sarah was like, oh, it's kind of like when you take up a dried <laughs> a plant in a pot, right? And then you, like, you know, put a ton of water in it, and then it just, like, falls right over. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: like too much. Too yeah. much for it all to handle. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I'm sure many people in this area, uh, w- we know a lot of people who have had trees fall on cars and on homes and barns and um it's uh it's been quite a difficult week i think for many people in the state of maine um and but but um it's important to remember what we have here in the state of maine we have the most heavily forced state in the nation. Mm-hmm. And many people absolutely love this state for that reason. It provides us this, pro- provides us with all kinds of natural resources and all kinds of access to wilderness that you just can't get in other places. Um so even though it's been difficult, I think it's important to keep in mind and remember what, what all the benefits of living here are. Uh and to that point, um I, I looked for some some scientific evidence to back that up and I found that there's recently an urban study done that mm-hmm. found that um and this was in particular in urban areas, but I think it applies to us here in many parts of Maine too, that um, the greater amount of forest cover you have in your vicinity, the healthier the part of your brain is that processes emotions and fear and anxiety. Huh. Uh, so they basically found that um, if, if you live near trees, uh, you typically are more resilient to stress and anxiety. And they found that this, this relationship wasn't true for bodies of water. So huh. living closer to bodies of water.
0: Interesting. Doesn't
1: have the same effect. Because I've
0: heard of, you know, the effect of the ocean being mm. calming or something. but
1: Well, let's keep in mind that this is just one study, right? right. yeah. And so it doesn't represent the entire body of work yep. of, of exposure to green spaces and how yeah. that, that benefits us. But but the, in that larger body of work, there is a lot of evidence that access to green space, like, like we all have here in Maine, so readily available to us, yeah. um, is linked to having longer lives, to being less aggressive. Lower aggression levels, um, and to improving um, the cognitive development of children. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and these are all just correlations. It doesn't mean that it's causing these things, but but there are these relationships, and and I hope um, you know as we discover why these are the case, uh, we can come to appreciate and continue to appreciate what we do have here in Maine.
0: Right. Where was that study done, or?
1: Uh, I can't remember the, the city. I can, we can look it up, and we'll post a link to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but it, but it was it is important to no, know it wasn't done in rural areas. It was done right, in urban in area. Areas. Yeah.
0: So what else do we have to be thankful for?
1: Well, um, today, uh, in addition to hopefully being the last day of our power outage, <laughs> is also <laughs> uh, officially the longest day of the year.
0: How is that it's so? the
1: end of daylight savings time, Skylar. It's the only 25-hour day in the calendar year.
0: Ah, ha, ha.
1: And um, on that note, I, I looked up some uh, some sci- recent science that looks at uh, relationships between circadian rhythms, which are those like patterns of how we wake and sleep, and, and how they relate to daylight uh, and when the sun rises and sunsets, and our health. And there was a recent study that actually found that if you live in the western edge of a time zone. Uh huh as opposed to the eastern edge of a time zone, you're right. much more likely to get certain types of cancer.
0: Like and
1: Breast cancer is the one that they found a really huh, um, strong, strong correlation. correlation with. And again, they don't, like the previous study, they don't know exactly why this is. It's just a It's just it's a, a relationship. It's a pattern. But the idea, the hypothesis that they're looking into testing is this one about circadian disruption, where if you have to wake up at times... That are different than when your body naturally wants to wake up
0: mm-hmm. it causes
1: a stress response a small stress response in your body and if you're doing that over and over and over again every workday for your whole life
0: just like how the dogs wake me up at 4 a.m every morning for my whole life
1: <laughs> feed me feed me <laughs> yeah it it causes a certain amount of stress that may actually result to a greater risk of certain types of diseases like cancer mm. and um the reason the time the the position in your time zone is important is because, you know, like here in Maine, we live at the eastern edge of the um, uh, of
0: the eastern, what do you call it, standard, the eastern time. standard time zone. And, yes, T, Tom. Right.
1: And <laughs> thanks, <Skyler>. guy. <laughs> and uh,
0: um,
1: so, if you have the same work schedule as someone living at the western edge of that time zone, you're likely to wake up after the sun has set. Has, a sun has risen, as opposed to the person in the western time. Right. Uh, edge of the time zone might be waking up before the sun has risen. So mm-hmm. they're gonna have a little more stress and forcing of that circadian rhythm than you are. Um and so there is a there is definitely a benefit of being at the eastern edge of a time zone right. and getting the you know, the earliest sunrises in the in the nation over here. Um, and that it might be helping us follow our body's natural sleeping and waking patterns in a way that's healthy for us in the long run.
0: Right. Yeah. And some of the earlier sunsets, I suppose. So what else uh, What else is going on in the science world?
1: Well, we're going to shift from all this talk of day and night and trees falling and uh, to Kansas.
0: Kansas?
1: Why are we going to Kansas?
0: I don't know. Marine
1: biology is why we're going to Kansas.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that makes no sense, Tom.
1: Well, wait a second, Skylar. Weren't you just invited to give a talk? in kansas well, as a marine biologist
0: next year yeah but no but it not as a marine biologist it's for an a sustainability meeting oh, okay. science and storytelling
1: Oh, okay okay my but, my mistake
0: but you know i'll try to hit up all the major tourist attractions right
1: right kansas so we were wondering what the heck is in kansas like why why would it be so great to go to kansas well i just found out today that kansas was 85 million years ago at the bottom of a gigantic shallow sea that stretched from the Rockies to the Appalachians and the Arctic to the Gulf of Mexico.
0: Wow. And that
1: was during the Cretaceous period. When was that? Uh, 85 million years ago. Okay. Between about like 90 million years ago and 65 million years ago, around then. Okay. Um, and the great things about this is not only was it at the bottom of this massive sea, but a lot of the area of Kansas around the Badlands has these uh, exposed chalk and shale deposits that you can mm-hmm. walk all over and that are right there on the surface of the earth. And chalk is also called diatomaceous earth. Right. Which means it's the skeletons of these tiny little single-celled algae in the ocean called diatoms. And many organisms were, after they died during the Cretaceous period, were buried in <laughs> in this chalk, these chalk layers, which preserved them as fossils. Ah. So by by scouring these areas around the Badlands of diatomaceous earth and shale, they can piece together what those Cretaceous-era marine ecosystems looked like and how they're different from the marine ecosystems of today. And the really interesting thing about that is that during that period of the Cretaceous, the earth was... um, Let me get my... Fact straight, 85% covered in water. So there's much more water area than there is today. There were no glaciers, no winters, no ice caps. Wow. So this is, like, worst-case scenario, what the what the Earth might look like after, like, all of the global warming uh, predictions unfold all in the next few— Oh, Greenland's right, ice sheets all, melt. Exactly, right? Right. Um, after the Cretaceous period, <laughs> that shifted
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, more in, towards what we see today. But at that period, they had no marine mammals— Instead of marine mammals, they had all these um, primitive, large reptiles filling the same ecological niches as marine mammals, things called like plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs and mesosaurs and pterosaurs, Uh, also filling the niches of of marine birds. So instead of albatrosses, you'd have these giant pterodactyl-like birds that would fish in the ocean. And instead of like dolphins, you'd have these things like ichthyosaurs, large, gaping, teeth-filled mouths that chase after fish in the ocean yeah and uh, those are the um relatives of some of today's reptiles but it's a totally different system than what we have now
0: yeah well so kansas is not such a bad place if i go to kansas (laughs) i will you know if i see any of those things uh we're going to take a quick music break and after that we're going to talk about um ecocasts and citizen science here in maine Welcome back to the Strictly Fish Wrap Science Radio Hour. I'm your host, Skylar Bear.
1: And I'm your co-host, Tom Young.
0: And so Tom has done a great job of wrapping up a few uh, science topics um, from this week and what to be thankful for living here in Maine with time zones and trees and you know, maybe not so much the power outages. Um, actually, I want to check the CMP website. I feel like... I've been checking the CMP website more than I've ever checked any website. Uh, We're still at 539 residents without, or sorry, customers without power. That's in Lincoln
1: Lincoln County County. where where we live, not Knox County, County, where only only four dozen people could be so unlucky. (laughs) Yeah,
0: right. There's only five, okay, it's 512 for Newcastle, but it's like around 4,000 for Lincoln County. So, anyway... Um and I just got an email from my boss saying, Well we have power, I hope you do too although CMP website has not suggested such.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but
0: but to switch to a happier <laughs> happier topic. <laughs> um I'm going to uh, play for you. I have two parts to Nick Records' interview, and he does the EcoCast, which we've played on the show before. Um, but I finally got him pinned down, he's a very busy man, um, at Bigelow to do an interview about his EcoCast and some stories about like um, where he gets his data from, how these systems work, and um, what he kind of hopes they can bring to the public in the future.
2: My name is Nick Record. I am a senior scientist at Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences, and I'm basically the resident math geek. I do ecosystem modeling, which is a lot of math and computer science, and occasionally I still get to go out on boats.
0: (laughs) Have you always done mostly math?
2: Yeah, I was a huge math geek ever since I was a little kid. I really liked math and was good at it, but eventually I decided that I didn't just want to be stuck in an office doing math all day, and that was when I when I shifted into ocean science. And luckily, ocean sciences is a, a field where they're, they really like people who are good at math, and there's lots for me to do, especially with ecosystem science.
0: I understand you do math, and so a lot of that math is often called modeling, right? Yes. So what, what is modeling? Because there's so many different interpretations of what that means. So.
2: Yeah, that's actually why I say math. I'm a math geek instead of a modeling geek because modeling means something different to almost everybody. The the kind of modeling that I do is, is basically figuring out how the ecosystem works. It's like bringing in data from satellites, from measurements in the field, bringing in equations from theory about how ecosystems work and kind of putting it all together. But I could be working on anything from viruses to whales, and the models could be as simple as plotting X against Y, or they can be these really complex three-dimensional fluids moving around through space and time, carrying organisms that are eating each other in this really elaborate simulation. But but modeling in general means anything to anyone. It's one of those words that is just really hard to, to use and define because people just use it however they
0: want. So what are some examples of these very different kinds of models?
2: The main difference that I deal with is statistical models versus mechanistic models. In a mechanistic model you're trying to put in the equations for all the processes that you think are important, like the physics of ocean fluids and the rate at which uh, species X eats species Y and all these different things that you know are happening and people have measured in the lab or in the field and you try to build a simulation. And then the statistical models are let's just collect a bunch of data and see what's related to each other and those are really useful too and oftentimes people will use both of those models on the same question and come up with really different answers right and so you have these nice healthy debates that uh, (laughs) that define science and egos and all that stuff
0: so that actually brings me to my next question is we've featured your ecocast on our podcast before.
2: Yes, thank you for featuring
0: <laughs> Well, it's great, right? And so I'm wondering what kind of modeling goes into those ecocasts?
2: So the ecocast, it's, it's based a lot on weather forecasting. Weather forecasts are one of the models that, that most people get. People are familiar with weather forecasts. They look at them every day. They're an integral part of the way we plan our lives. Even if they're sometimes wrong, uh, they're still actually mostly right and we can complain about them, but they do a really good job. If you don't like the weather forecast, you should try uh, living your life based on the farmer's almanac. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but those are models. People understand how to digest that information. And so my thought was to try to apply that same sort of concept to ecology. Can we forecast ecology on a daily timescale in a way that's useful to people? And so I've sort of picked uh, different species and different ideas and problems in ecology that I think would be really useful for people to have forecasts of. One of one example is the tick cast, the daily deer tick forecast, because deer ticks are a big problem now in the Northeast because of Lyme disease and all the other sort of terrifying diseases that they carry. And wouldn't it be nice to know if today is a uh, bad tick day if I'm going out to work in the garden. I actually started that one because my kids were getting ticks all over them uh, at certain times of year and just wanted to know like when do I need to worry about ticks the most. So, it's, um, so I started and I do other species too, like I do jellyfish, uh, I've done right whales in the past, which is a really endangered species of, ra- of whale that feeds in the Gulf of Maine. Working on some harmful algal bloom forecasts for aquaculture and, and a variety. We're working on one now that's a forecast of moose-car interactions, a sort of interaction that you want to avoid. and and deer car interactions. Yeah. Just playing with the data now. But you could imagine if all these were in one place and you just wanted to go and get kind of like the forecast for everything that's happening in Maine or outside of wherever you live and there are all these things that you could look at. If I'm driving from here to to, uh, New Hampshire and I want to know what's the best time of day or what's the best route to take to avoid running into a deer, that could be useful. If I want to go to the beach and I'm worried about jellyfish. It would just be useful to be, be able to look at all this stuff. And so in that way it's really similar to weather forecasts. The way that it's different is that our way of collecting data on all of these different animals is different than when the way we collect weather data. For weather data you can just throw up a weather sensor. Uh, in fact, Weather Underground bases a lot of their forecasts just on people's personal weather stations. Mm-hmm. People, volunteers just put them up at their house, stream the data, and a lot of that goes into the weather forecasts. For something like ticks, you can't just put out a, a weather station and measure ticks, deers running into cars, or vice versa, jellyfish, and all these other things we want to forecast. And It's really time-consuming and expensive to get quality measurements of all these things. So what I've done is to turn to citizen reports. So it's kind of like citizen science. There are all these citizen science projects going on right now. Maine is well known for having a strong tradition of citizen science, and I think it's because so much of our lives and our livelihoods are tied to the natural environment. Uh, like right now, for example, uh, you know, 30% of the state is still out of power after day three of the storm, and, and people in Maine are equipped to deal with that. Uh, many of us have wood stoves, and we cut That's our right. own wood, and so on. And um, you know, lots of people grow their own vegetables, and lots of people are just more use, more accustomed to interacting, I think, with the natural world than a lot of other places are. And part of that has fed this really strong citizen science tradition that we have here. And there are all kinds of citizen science projects going on. So when I when I opened this up to get reports from people, people were complaining about jellyfish. That's how I started it. And I was like, well, let's just, let's just see if people will send me jellyfish reports. And in the first summer that I did this, I just got hundreds and hundreds of reports. Yeah. People, you know, on the beach seeing jellyfish want to know what's going on, and they'll send me their sighting information. They'll send me photographs, um, date and time, location, basically all the stuff that I need to feed the model so that for, the, for these forecasting models, mm-hmm. we can't use the approach that weather forecasting, forecasters use because weather forecasters are using basically atmospheric physics. And we right. know the equations that describe atmospheric physics. We've known them for a long, long time. We don't know the equations that describe ecology. And so I have to lean more on statistical models and I use machine learning.
0: Machine learning is a field of computer science that gives computers the ability to learn without being explicitly programmed. Nick explains a bit more.
2: And there's a really wide range from neural networks which are designed to, to look like the human brain actually uh, to, to much simpler approaches where data is just kind of plotted, you look for a relationship, and as new data comes in that relationship can change. And so the algorithm learns in that way. So there's a really, uh, really wide spectrum of machine learning methods. And I like tinkering with all of those. But yeah, the basic idea is that the algorithm can learn as new data comes in. And the other side of that is that the the data are of variable quality control. Mm -hmm. When you collect weather data or most environmental data, there are quality control protocols that you use to make sure it's good data. Well, the report's that I get are really varied and interesting in lots of different ways. I mean, sometimes it'll just be like shirtless men holding blobs of jelly, which is amusing. Some people will send me, some people will call me on the phone or send me glossy photos of the jellyfish that they saw. Some people tell these really interesting stories too. They won't just email me that they saw a jellyfish, but they'll tell me the whole history of I've been fishing off this dock for 40 years, here are all the things I've seen in that time, and this is really unusual and here's why. And I think that's uh, I think it's an untapped source of, of knowledge, yeah. in Maine and probably elsewhere too, but we have so many people here who have been observing the natural world for such a long time and have these observations and figuring out how to, how to extract that knowledge from people. is. Uh, and people, people have done studies like that before. I think of Ted Ames, uh, yeah. paper on cod. Where it's usually focused of, on
0: fishing. Right.
2: It's usually focused on fishing. If you think about it in terms of an ecosystem, it's much more complex, but there's a lot more, there's a lot more observations out there. There's, it's not just fishermen. It's everyone who's been observing things uh, for a long time. When somebody says, I saw a big blob in Old Man's Cove last Tuesday, that's a different level of quality control than most scientists are used to working with. Right. And so a lot of the the newer kind of big data analysis methods that are sort of an outgrowth of statistical modeling but but use things like machine learning and um, new computational techniques, there are some new algorithms that people have developed for working with variable quality control data. And it's still an open area of development, and I'm working on developing those algorithms, too. That's where the math and computer science geek in me comes out, um, how to develop the right algorithm to work with this this data set where we have a lot of data, but of really, often really poor quality. But if you have enough, that quantity of data can make up for the quality, and you you can figure out how to still make a reliable forecast
0: out of it. When you make a prediction, or your algorithms do is it based on what the conditions were like last year or is it more to do with the past few days or is it sort of more complicated than that?
2: It's a combination of those two things. So one of the pieces of information that goes in, for each sighting, we have what were the conditions like when that sighting was made. And so that's a major part of tuning the model so that when we see those conditions again, it's more likely that our, our prediction will be higher Um, And then in terms of, we use time of year as well as one of the variables, because a lot of the species are really seasonal. Uh, But that's not the only story. You know, as things get warmer, the seasonality changes, so we have to figure out ways to account for all that. And then there's the issue of how how far back in time do you go because, because they're more like statistical responses. Ticks might have responded to temperature differently 20 years ago than they do now as they expand their range. And so we're experimenting with how you weight data based on how old it is and giving the more recent data a stronger weighting. So yeah. that, that's basically how we account for that. But there's no perfect way to do it. It's not, it's not going to be the same every year. It's not going to be the same with every species. And that's how machine learning can be really valuable because it can, go, it can do this sort of real-time tuning process where it plays with all of those different dimensions and all those different aspects and figures out what's going to give you the most accurate forecast.
0: We still don't know a lot about these ecology equations, right?
2: Yeah, and so because we don't know those equations, we have to rely much more heavily on people sending us reports because the model could go off course in just a day or two. But if people keep feeding those reports in, the learning algorithms can sort of self-correct as that information comes in. And then the other piece of data that's really valuable are these geospatial uh, data layers like what we get from satellites or even just you know, maps of population density or, um, or weather forecast data like winds and rain and that sort of thing is really useful when we're making our forecasts. And so it's like blending all this data together, then making a forecast, and then figuring out how to get the forecast back to people who are sending me those reports.
0: So that is the first half of actually a pretty long interview with Nick, but um, we're just going to play that today, although the second half I will put online. Um, and if you want to report to Nick, uh, you can, you know, for ticks and jellyfish, um, I think it's like tick.biglow.org, jellyfish.biglow.org, um, and he, you can contact him at nrecord. Um, N-R-E-C-O-R-D at Bigelow.org and if you're on Twitter um, he's at Seascape Science Um, and I also, you can look him up online and call him because people call him up too. Um, So we're going to take a quick music break and then we'll come back and uh, wrap up the show. That song seemed pretty appropriate given machine learning. (laughs) Machine learning is a type of artificial intelligence, technically, although I don't know all the definitions really well.
1: I I really loved loved Nick's uh, description of a model as something that needs to be fed with data. I just created these images or uh, memories of watching Little Shop of Horrors with uh, (laughs) Feed Me Seymour, the giant...
0: Oh, um, yeah.
1: Venus flytrap. Right. Yeah.
0: yeah. I only saw that once when I was young. It's a classic. Yeah. For someone. <laughs> 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 um, well, so the second half of the interview, like I said before, uh, we'll have it available online, but we just don't have time today. But um, more about Nick's vision for the future, which is <laughs> a good one. Uh, But he thinks everyone should have ecology in their daily life, and that can help them make decisions. But I think that Ecocast would be great for, you know, figuring out when you might see moose or alewives or um, all sorts of things. Um, You just need to be more invested in it. And it's also fun to just observe the natural world. And I just wanted to say quickly that Tom talked uh, earlier today about an article he read about the importance of spacing out sometimes and not always looking (laughs) at your phone. So I know we just talked about electronics, but it's actually really good to um, remove apps from your phone and not look at it and let yourself be bored because you tap more into your creativity that way.
1: Yeah, it actually said that it's it's really healthy for your brain to sort of zone out and daydream and really have nothing... No tasks specifically to do. So you can just let your mind wander. It's a really healthy thing for it. It's where... We go into this imaginary world where we start to synthesize our memories and fantasize about new realities and pull those together and create a narrative of our life and also uh, sometimes come up with our most brilliant solutions to our most dire problems, such as what are we going to do with the leftovers in the fridge?
0: Right. Yeah. Those omelets. Right. And also (laughs) writing our next novel or book of short stories or, um, yeah, coming up with book titles and such and whatever or solving that amazing math problem you're working on
1: right so delete that delete that app that is distracting you the most and just let yourself zone out yeah it's a good thing
0: you might be zoning out during this radio show
1: probably are for (laughs) if you're listening you probably are wake up
0: (laughs) yeah so anyway that's that's it for now um It might, this show might repeat in the future. Hopefully, not two or three months like one of my shows (laughs) did accidentally. But um, take care of yourself, keep up to date with science. Look out for Strictly Fisher up online. It'll probably be interviews and short stories and stuff, but just not the typical radio show. But hopefully in the future we'll resume. Who knows, maybe Tom and I will record our phone calls while we're having our long-distance relationship (laughs) from D.C. to Maine uh, with the goal in mind of me returning to Maine. So with that, we're going to play you a a little song.
1: A little goodbye.
0: A little goodbye. It's not goodbye forever, though, which is good. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> um, yeah. And strictlyfisherup at gmail.com is still available. Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, and maybe eventually iTunes. So, um, so long. And I hope you have power, and we hope we have power soon. It's an important and popular fact that things are not always what they see. For instance, on the planet Earth, man had always assumed that he was the most intelligent species occupying the planet, instead of the third most intelligent. The second most intelligent creatures were, of course, dolphins, who, curiously enough, had long known of the impending destruction of the planet Earth. They had made many attempts to alert mankind to the danger, but most of their communications were misinterpreted as amusing attempts to punch footballs or whistle for tidbits. So they eventually decided they would leave Earth by their own means. The last ever dolphin message was misinterpreted as a surprisingly sophisticated attempt to do a double backward somersault through a hoop while whistling the star-spangled banner. But in fact, the message was this. So long, and thanks for all the fish.